All right, welcome everyone. This is uh, That's Criminal with yours truly, John Stamp. That's Criminal, the podcast is where we talk true crime from the case file to crime fiction and everything in between. Today, I get to chat with Dr. Bill Kimberlin. Dr. Kimberlin holds a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, a master's degree in sociology, and a doctorate in psychology. And uh, I asked him to join me to discuss his book, Watch Me Die, Last Words from Death Row. In Watch Me Die, uh, Dr. Kimberlin explores the uh, grim realities of death row in Ohio and across the rest of America. He spends time interviewing inmates and eating meals with them. In some cases, he's the last person to speak with them before they are executed. From the moment they're placed on suicide watch until the moment they're executed, Dr. Kimberlin follows their often twisted and complex journey through the execution process. So Dr. Kimberlin, thank you very much for meeting me today. Hey, I appreciate it. It's an honor to be on here and uh, feel free to call me Bill. So uh, uh, like I said, it's, it's great to be on your show. I, I appreciate the, this opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. So in, in Watch Me Die, we were talking a little bit before we started, uh, the window that you open up uh, for the part of, you know, most of our society probably don't want to see too closely the, behind the curtain and these sorts of things. Sure. And you go into vivid and very honest detail of a lot of it. But uh, to start, I'd like to start at the beginning on, on the uh, interesting journey you took to, to get to this point of, of being the guy uh, a, a condemned person wants to call on to share moments with. Sure. So um, I'll be honest with you, it, it, it never was supposed to get to this point. Um, so when I was teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, at the, at the college level, most of my classes I was teaching were uh, abnormal psychology, social psychology, um, uh, any, anything in the field of psychology, because that's, that's what my doctor is in. And uh, a lot of times you'd end up discussing <clears throat> the, the hottest debatable topics of the time. So you're looking at, you know, the legalization of drugs, gun rights, abortion rights, obviously, and then capital punishment. And I've been fortunate enough to grow up with guns all my life hunting, you know, in Canada and all over, um, also traveling to different countries. So I knew enough about the drug laws. Um, my master's was in counseling. So I got to uh, counsel uh, women dealing with uh, the losses with abortions and I'd been to abortion clinics. But the only thing I really didn't know a whole lot about was um, death row or the death row process. And I discovered that it was, you know, so non-transparent um, based on the research I started doing. And I never wanted to be the type of uh, professor that would teach book smarts only. So I um, decided to, you know, get involved to see if I can get into death row um, had some connections. Uh, one of my best friends who's a common police court judge now, uh, Roger Bennett, he gave me the name to um, the attorney general's office. I call, they hang up on me. I call back, try to explain a little bit about what I'm trying to do. And um, the receptionist felt sorry for me, I think, because I had never, they had never been asked this question before about, you know, going to death row or, or witnessing an execution. And the laws are pretty straightforward, but she said, I'll send you the, the Ohio Revised Code, which spells out the laws, the inmates that are scheduled to die. And if you can find a loophole, have at it. Next thing you know, I, you know, I, I reach out to a couple of death row inmates, um, you know, just a letter stating who I was and, and that I was just there to learn from them. Uh, I had a couple of them reach back out to me. Next thing you know, they're asking me to come visit them. So I did. 
and then the one guy, Chris Newton, was the first one asked me if I wanted to watch him die. And I said, yeah, sure. So that's how it started. And the next thing you know, it just um, mushrooms in, into this huge, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old journey that I'm still on, um, where now everybody, you know, I guess refers to me as the expert on death row, but it, it didn't, I didn't set out for it to be that way. <laughs> Yeah, and, uh, and you mentioned that, yeah, Mr. Newton, the first one uh, you come into, uh, it was interesting reading about him and that he was actually looking forward um, to the process, I guess, so to speak, in a, in a manner of speaking. Um, but but um, the, I guess the, the process in and of itself, you, uh, speaking of the, you know, the conditions of, of most of these prisons, um, but the, uh, the process that you go through, uh, you, you seem to find, you know, that a, a lot of these people society would write off, you know, you, you get that you're condemned to, to be executed society's done with you. And all they get is, you know, the, the gory, you know, discovery ID episodes, you know, right. Correct. you, uh, fostered relationships with these people and, and found their humanity in, in discussing with them. Can you, can you tell me how you go about building that rapport and that, and, you know, is it a long process or is there sometimes people jump at it? Other times you got to work at people. So I would say the, the biggest skill that you can have in this field would be patience um, because of the fact that to get to know these individuals. And, and of course, now I have them all over the country, both male and female. A trust is very hard to come by, especially in the penitentiary. And then death row being a, a, a prison within a prison. So, you know, I, I had learned just over the years that the least amount of questions I ask them, the more they'll tell me. Um, I, uh, it, I was blown off, completely off guard when I got to go on to death row uh, because, you know, you had mentioned like the, you know, the ID specials and things like that. And they show everything so uh, secured and everybody behind glass and shackled and, uh, um, uh, my producer, Caitlin uh, Keating, uh, and I were just talking about this because she's going to be accompanying me on uh, death rows uh, over uh, a, a period of time throughout different states as we're uh, working on some filming things. And uh, when I explained to her that her and I would be going in there, there's no handcuffs, there's no shackles, there's no chains. You don't sit in front of a glass window and that that's all when you go to film it, but when I'm in there with them, it's one-on-one, -on -one. it's, you know, um, I laugh with them, joke with them just to put them at ease so they know that um, they can trust me. And uh, I've never sold out any of them. So I have like, I don't know, maybe like over 2000 pieces of art just laying around that they've sent me over the years. I've never sold any of that. Uh, and you can make a fortune selling it. Um, I don't sell their letters. I, I, I try not to even mention their names when I post their art on social media because I don't like to glamorize them or glorify them. But, you know, I deal with some of the most high profile ones all the way down to people you never heard of before. And it's simply because they get my name now from other members on death row and then they reach out to me. So it, it's taken a lot of time, a lot of patience um, and a lot of trial and error because, you know, I, I've talked to them uh over the years where you know I've, I've asked them the wrong questions or started out too soon and uh, then they just you know drop me so it, it's it's a process it's a learning process 
Yeah. And uh, speaking of, you know, that you, you try you push too hard and they just shut down. Um, and it makes me think of the environment uh, these guys live in. And, and you mentioned several uh, different prison systems in your book, but uh, oftentimes uh, these guys are locked down 23 hours a day. And then you met, you made it, it was a very stark description when you said they're, they get out for one, one hour of activity, but it's basically an oversized dog kennel that they get to walk around in and that's their life. So that seclusion must really work on them. Well, you know, and, and, and I think um, when people read the book, so the one thing that I set out to do and you and I briefly hit on this before the, you started recording was the fact that it's not very written in an academic format. Uh, it's very um, easily read. Um, because I, I wasn't trying to sway people one way or the other, you know, whether you're for the death penalty or against death penalty, that's irrelevant to me. I just wanted anybody that was interested in that, in that form of, of punishment or that topic before they come to their opinion, I wanted them to have an educated opinion. So everything I've written is firsthand knowledge. It's, it's written as fact because I, I, I experienced it all. Um, so when you know, most people think of death row, that's how they view it. You know, the, the 23 hours a day you're locked down, uh, you know, you're pumped sunlight into them and everything else. But when I got there and I realized that there's so much more freedom on death row, that the guys on death row actually prefer to be on death row than in general population. And they, you know, they can order stuff or have people order stuff for them you know, just like people would do a, a Kroger's click list or, or something along those lines. They can, they have TVs, they have uh, tablets, they have phone privileges. I mean, every single day I get emails and, and letters and phone calls there from death rows from all over because they have that much access. And I don't think people realize um, the amount of money that's on death row and, and the, uh, a lot of the freedoms that they actually do get to uh, experience while they're on death row. Yeah, we always found it interesting. Um, and in when I was out in the field, the the canteen um, at the you know at a general county or even state system, uh, that canteen meant a lot. But I guess in that in that uh, secluded area, yeah, you the structure wouldn't be as much. Um, and I and do the guards treat them differently in any given way? The relationship between the the general population and and these people who are awaiting uh, their final day. So I try not to speak to too many guards um, for obvious reasons, you know. So when I'm on death row and I'm around either, whether it's one inmate or 25 of them, you know, they're all separated from general population. So they have nothing to lose. Uh, and, you know, I've been told um, before that the guards will let anybody in. They get to decide if I leave or not. So... <clears throat> I, you know, I, I, I want to keep their uh, trust uh, in front of me, so I try not to talk to a lot of the guards, uh, but the guards that I have talked to on the outside, they prefer to um, be assigned to death row because it's a real easy population to deal with. Um, you put somebody who is uh, raped and murdered a child on general population, you know, and that, that person, they're never going to be able to sleep without, you know, one eye open on death row, they all get along. So there's very few fights. It's kind of quiet. They keep it clean. Uh, and so it's an easier population for them to uh, uh, stand guard over. 
the general population, they cram them in, you know, two, three to a cell or dorms, death row, single cells. So, uh, and, the, and the population is pretty limited. So. Yep. Yeah. So the, the conditions are more for a person who wants to be isolated and needs that time. They basically they're they're living large in inside that correctional system for what you know that paradigm is. Correct. And you, you mentioned that when you go in there, you're uh, you're in the food chain. Um, those, yeah. because yeah, the, the guards are there to maintain it, but you know, that right. action versus reaction, you're at at least a half a second. You're the last one to know if somebody decides it's your day. Absolutely. Um, how do you, uh, we, have you ever been in a group setting or is it always one-on-one? Sure. So when I'm in uh, Florida's death row, there's typically about 25 death row inmates in the same room, um, each with their own visitors, but you're allowed to freely walk around. Uh, visit one another, have pictures taken, you know, get food at the canteen, everything like that. And there's usually only one guard uh, in that in that setting. So you have 25 death row inmates in one guard. Uh, so, I mean, it, uh, we're in San Quentin, for instance, you know, you're locked in the cage with that inmate. Uh, so you're he's not going anywhere, but neither are you. You can still get your food and everything, but you bring it inside the cage and you're locked in with a padlock. Um, Ohio, it depends, you know, sometimes there'll be three or four or five inmates other, most of the time, it's just one at a time, uh, that I'm sitting there with and, uh, you can converse and, and again, you can get your pictures taken, you know, whatever you want. It's, um, people would find it, uh, probably surprising to, to know what death row is really like, uh, what you don't see on TV anyways. So, yeah, so that's why that's why I asked about the group versus isolated uh, situation, because to maintain that rapport and work on that communication and ensure that you're walking that balance with somebody who has clearly had a had a, a difficult life and is probably shrouded or guarded more than most. You not only have to focus on your conversation and and continue that positive communication, but you have to be watching out the your six nine and twelve right <laughs> you so, know my my head's on a swivel and i uh, i am sucking down the caffeine the entire time um because you are on edge even though you gotta uh show that you're not uh and i never show any emotions at whatever they tell me uh as gory as it may sound because a lot of times they want that shock value as well just testing you out um and, and those are the things you learn over the years you know th- there's no courses you can take in this at the college level that you know train you to talk to death row inmates and you know the the, the profiling stuff and that's not uh, something that I really subscribe to in that area uh, but yeah your head's on a swivel you always are alert um, and yet you have to show that you're calm and that you want to be there yeah that's that's got to be a tight tight rope to walk sometimes I yeah. imagine <laughs> and, and and in in that um can you uh can you walk us through, you mentioned uh, some of the heinous crimes that, that some of these people are accused of. Um, can you walk me through the process, maybe an example of, of one inmate in particular, uh, kind of start to finish of how you go about uh, not only building that rapport, seeing it through, but also being able to compartmentalize, you know, your, your, your moral worldview with the person sitting in front of you. Sure. So, um, you know, I'll, um, w- when an inmate reaches out to me, or at that time when I was reaching out to them, um, my main thing was to let them know that they had to admit that they were guilty right off the bat if they were going to talk to me because I was there 
for the sole purpose of getting inside that criminal mind, that criminal thinking aspect, um, and seeing what the process is all about. Uh, and 99% of them were perfectly fine with that. So then you, um, you know, you'll correspond a lot, whether it's written format or email, phone calls, sometimes video, whatever, uh, as well as face-to-face. -face. So as I would go there, and this is in Ohio at the time when I was living in Ohio, so it was closer, um, you know, I would drive to death row, um, schedule the visits, uh, sit with them. You know, sometimes we'd talk about the weather, politics, you know, everything but their crimes. Uh, and, and I would spend hours doing that and then say, all right, I'll, you know, I'll try to, you know, catch up with you next month or something like that and leave it at that. So that showed them that I wasn't there just to hear the gore and to get into their case and stuff. Uh, and, and it's really just, uh, it's a basic form of manipulation. They're very good at manipulating the people on the outside. So you have to be good at manipulating them. And it was my way of manipulating them, showing them that, listen, I'm not here just to learn from you what the, the, the case is all about, which is really not true. That's the only thing I wanted to learn about, but I knew going about it, you had to play their game. So, you know, it would take a while to do that, especially not knowing if their appeals were going to be, you know, denied or, you know, some of them didn't want to go for a stay. Um, as their date would get closer, they would uh, obviously become a little bit more needy. Sometimes I'd get them a food box or whatever like that, or replace their art supplies because they were sending me stuff. Um, then uh, like for Ohio, 30 days out before their execution, they're placed on what's called suicide watch. So they're placed in a separate section of death row, um, pretty much all alone. So at that point, they're allowed more visitation. Uh, so I would go down there more uh, spend more time with them. Usually about three days before they transfer, transfer them out of the prison to the death house, which is in a separate part of Ohio, um, we would be allowed to spend eight hours on death row just walking up and down uh, all alone. We order, I think we ordered like $80 worth of Italian food. It was delivered to the prison, sit, eat, you know, whatever. Uh, the whole time they're thinking that maybe, just maybe they they'll get a last minute stay because they've had so many phantom dates they're called where they've told, you know, been told when they're going to be executed and it never happens. So about, about that time, you know, when there's about three days to go beforehand, then it, then it starts really getting real to them. Uh, and you can notice a huge difference in their um, behaviors. Uh, they become a lot more somber. Um, I, I wouldn't say more accepting of the fact, but you know, the, easier to agitate, things like that. Um, so that's when it gets the most dangerous is the closer it gets. Um, they'll transfer them down to uh, what we called Lucasville. Uh, in, it's on the border of Kentucky and Ohio, uh, southern part of Ohio, where the death house is. The night before I would go down, um, I'd see them that morning of the execution. Sometimes it'd be the last person to, to talk to them. Uh, then I'd go, you know, over to the witness side. There was only three people allowed on each side, three on the defendant side, three on the state side. Um, and then you watch the entire lethal injection process take place from start to finish where they uh, make them walk, you know, to the, to the bed. They strap them down. You get to see them put the IVs in, you know, make the last statement. You know, it, it, it's, it's not something that it's... Um, 
that I, I don't know too many people that would really want it to witness it. Everybody says they want to, uh, but those are the ones that have never really seen how, uh, human life being taken in front of them. Uh, and regardless of what they've done, you know, crime-wise, they've never done anything to me or my family. So uh, it's not like watching somebody in hospice, you know, that have been suffering or anything like that. This person was just laughing and joking with you maybe an hour before, and here they are strapped down and uh, their life being taken away. Yeah, and uh, and then mentioning that, um, the the personal cost for you, I mean, you, you do foster a relationship and build rapport with these people. Does it have you, uh, has it evolved over time? I'm not saying have you built scars or calluses, but is, is it, has a perspective changed from the first to the, to the last one you've done? Is it? You know, if anything, it's changed. It's, it's probably been me. I, I think I've become more desensitized um, to uh, a lot of heinous crimes out there. So um, you mentioned at the beginning, like the ID shows and things like that, and it never fails. They'll show a prosecutor or, uh, you know, some person out there, law enforcement say, you know, this person is the most evil person I've ever seen, you know, and, and they very well are evil, uh, killed maybe one or two people or, or a family or something like that. And I'll sit there and I'll, I'll shake my head. I'm thinking they've been in the business for 20, 30 years, and this is the worst they've seen because I've talked to guys that have killed, you know, like somebody like Samuel Little who killed 89 people, you know, or, uh, Charles Ng, who's killed 25, you know, or, you know, numerous, numerous murders. So I, I found that I've gotten a little bit more desensitized to, to hearing about the crimes, which is not always a good thing either. Um, I think I have five or six more executions I've been asked to attend yet, uh, including the electric chair. And, um, you know, it, it's not something I ever look forward to, but you know, I told these guys that I would, and I'd follow through with it. And, uh, you know, trust is a hard thing to earn, especially on the inside. So you got to stick with it. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so as of now, as of uh, 2022, how many, do you, how many, um, how many of ex executions have you got, have you been through at this point? So I've been through, I've been to five, but I've seen three all the way through. The other two had either stays or, or you know, like a last minute uh, reprieve, reprieve. Um, but three from start to finish uh, in Ohio, all three lethal injection, all three different types of lethal injections as well. So, so the, uh, so the sample size, I, cause I had it in my, in my mind, maybe at, at some point there's a, you can, have you developed any themes? You mentioned the commonalities of them becoming somber as towards the end, I'm getting easier to agitate. Um, but I wondered, is, has there been any, any, um, just kind of, I guess, themes of, of how somebody faces their mortality that you've seen throughout that, that, that you could, um, your research has just kind of pointed to. Some people handle it this way, other people handle it this, that way. You know, it's, it's odd. Uh, what I've witnessed over the years is that, you know, these guys can kill pretty much anybody at any time uh, and have shown to be able to do that, but typically they can't kill themselves. And even though they, they don't appear to be spiritual or religious, um, a lot of times they don't want to kill themselves because in their mind, they're, they're still going to go to heaven because, you know, they've asked for forgiveness uh, and, and they think that they have, have received it. So um, I've never seen anybody kicking and screaming or fighting or anything. When, they, when they're walking to that execution table, it's like a deer in headlights. Um, and I think it's more shock than anything that it's actually going to happen. 
Um, but, you know, once they get on that table, you really don't know what's going to happen. The first execution I attended took like two hours from start to finish. You know, the guy was gasping. He was, you know, um, seizing and all that. And even before then, he had to get up off the table to go take a leak because it was taking too long for them to hook the other IV up. So, I mean, those are the things you just never really see on TV and hear about. And because of the, you know, the lack of transparency. So. Yeah. And, and that, uh, like you said, if, if somebody hadn't seen it before, but the, the way that the human body fights towards the end, when you're, when you know what's happening and, and right. seeing those biological processes, there's a primal thing that just, no matter what your role is, you just want it to stop. It's just a, it's a right. primal human. It's, it's a natural a defense mechanism that kicks in, you know, and, you know, they'll fight till the very end to, to take that last prep. And, um, you know, sometimes the drugs are not administered properly. There, there are no physicians. There are no nurses that are involved. Um, the, you know, there's no anesthesiologists. So it's, it's usually prison, prison EMTs. Um, you know, these guys have had, some of them had have had uh, years of intravenous drug use. So their veins are not, you know, the healthiest and, and will collapse. So they'll stick the needles in their neck or in their legs or wherever they can find the vein. Um, some drugs might wear off before the others. So the paralyzation agent that is typically administered that is for the benefit of us, the public witnessing it, uh, may wear off before the potassium chloride, you know, causes a fatal heart attack and you get to see that happening. So, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's a, a pretty um, bizarre uh, method of punishment in this country when you sit back and think that uh, all the other industrialized nations around the world, not very many, you know, have the death penalty. And, and here we are, um, not only do we use it, but we, we can't even agree on the methods or perfect anything close to it. So it makes you wonder. Yeah. And it uh, is, uh, and I mean, humans are a big herd and there's always going to be that conflict, human to human conflict. And our society's become accustomed every, every single night there's a shooting or there's some kind of death interaction between right. that we see. Um, but when you see it's a, it's an, it's an institutionally sponsored event, it's a government saying, you know, we're, we're executing you. Right. Is, does that carry an, an odd weight that just doesn't, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's, I'll be honest with you, it's hard to process when the fact of the matter is that you're, you're putting somebody, you're, you're watching a, a, a legalized murder. You know, the, this person does not want to die. The state by paper says you have to die. So they strap you down and they kill you in front of witnesses. Uh, and I just happen to be, you know, one of the witnesses. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to process, which is, why death row, I usually, you know, from where they execute, I usually live, you know, three or four uh, hours away. And I, you know, take that time to just process it. I don't, you know, the media will try to call all the time because they do give the list of the witnesses out. And, and I don't, you know, like to be quoted or anything like that because they never get it right. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't answer my phone. I just crank the music up and, and, and drive all the way home. So uh, with the hopes that it gets it out of my mind by the time I get home. Yeah, the decompressions. Got, yeah. You, you don't want to take that home. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. But then as soon as you get home, everybody at home wants to hear about it because, again, that lack of transparency 
while you want to bottle it up inside or you know decompress the, the general public wants more knowledge about it and i don't blame them because it's 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 a morbid curiosity that they have uh which i probably had myself back in the day but once you've gone through it so much you, you really just don't want to keep talking about it to them um but i get it it's it's only fair that they you know, are allowed to ask the questions in, in order to put their mind at ease as well. Yeah, it's a very unique, um, unique project that you kind of, you know, you volunteered for, but then it kind of grew on its own. Correct. And, and yeah. it, uh, so, so the way I understand it, the, the guys reach out to you. So their communications, like you said, the tablets, the phones, the computers. So over time, is it a matter of a, of a, of a trust thing or a, you know, somebody to, to get your last words out to that these guys see you as a as kind of a, a beacon there to to at least get their point across at this point sure so some of them if not all of them you know they have that narcissistic aspect to them uh and you know they, they don't want to be forgotten so you know they they've heard about me through other inmates you know sending kites back and forth or whatever and uh so they'll reach out to me and uh yeah, you could tell a lot of them, with, especially with the artwork or, you know, their stories that they they want to be, some of them want to be known as the most notorious serial killers and, and you know, murderers around. Um, so they want me to write about them or they want me to display their artwork and they, you know, they want, they want to talk to me. So, but they also will test you out, you know, they'll ask you questions, very personal questions about, you know, your family or where you live and, and things like that. And when they ask you those, they already know the answers. So you have to pretty much be open and honest with them because they'll call you out on it. If not, uh, it was just uh, a couple weeks ago when um, uh, Caitlin and, and uh, um, the crew were here filming and I had a box delivered right to my home here. Uh, on uh, right from uh, death row out in uh, California from the female death row inmate. Uh, and instead of sending it right to my PO box, which I always use, you know, they'll find your home address. And it's kind of like a little subliminal message to say, hey, you know, we, we, uh, we know where you live. So, um, you know, and so we op I opened it up right there while they got to film it, uh, just because it happened to be there. And uh, they've got nothing but time and resources to, uh, to find you. Yep. Yes. And, and so you, you mentioned, is that, uh, is that just kind of their one, you mentioned manipulative, you know, the, the manipulation aspect of a, of a, of a prisoner. And if I've seen, and I, I, I didn't have a spectacular career, but you see that manipulative aspect, aspect of those people under that incarceration. And that's just, uh, is that just something they feel like they can get a win? So they just, regardless of the relationship, yeah. if they can get a win on you, that, that just, makes them feel like they're still relevant somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they always want to be in control and yep. you have to make them or let them feel like they are always in control. Uh, even though they want to tell me their story, they want to make it seem like I need to hear their story. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a game of manipulation and uh, it's a game that's taken me many years to learn. Um, and, you know, I, I failed miserably at it numerous times in the very beginning. Um, but uh, I think I, I have, I've been seasoned enough now to where, um, you know, I, I think I have a pretty good grasp on it. Um, and they still keep reaching out to me. So uh, I must be doing something right. Uh, or at least I haven't uh, done enough 
wrong yet. I, I, I mean, just looking at the at the body of work uh, overall, it's it's uh, not only does it give a window to society, so society can look at it and say, is this something as a collective community we agree with or we we think should happen? Um, but it it continues to build that body of knowledge, getting to know these these people. You've mentioned that there were some uh, that would show you uh, would oh in your book you mentioned you know some that 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 will show you to more evidence more maybe there's a, a victim out there that wasn't identified may assist in trying to find that person, and you mentioned that you had spoken to authorities about it, um, but then at the same time sometimes there's no there's no motion whatsoever in it. Uh, so it, it, that's a that's a hard line to walk, and you go back empty-handed. Th- that just gives them power, or it gives them they get that upper hand. Right. So I have maps right now to I think four different bodies, um, and I have maps to two more coming soon uh, from two different serial killers, uh, and the bodies are in two different states. So. Um, the, the maps for the first two bodies were checked out. I, you know, I, I did my due diligence. I, you know, I went to the, the FBI to, you know, make sure everything was on the up and up. Um, they even uh, organized questions for me to ask the inmates. Um, I wanted to see the consistency of the map over time um, and uh, how um, detailed it was when you have them do it one time and then you know, a year later or something like that, and everything matched up consistently. Um, and even the uh, uh, the FBI agreed that they they were probably legitimate. But uh, unfortunately, um, again, something that I had no idea. People had told me before in the past to expect this, and and I blew it off. Um, but they don't like to use the resources when you're dealing with um, uh, prostitutes uh, or, or people that uh, are just not missed. And, and it's so unfortunate because they, they're labeled as, you know, drug addicts and prostitutes, but way before they were ever that, there's still somebody's, you know, daughter or sister, or mother, aunt, whatever, and regardless, they're human. And uh, they just don't like to allocate the resources um, from that level. And then from the local level, if it's still the same elected officials, chiefs of police or, or sheriffs, um, they don't want to make themselves look bad for not solving a homicide in their own jurisdiction. So there's very little help when it comes to law enforcement to recover these uh, unfortunate victims out there that are uh, that these guys have never been charged with the crimes yet with. So it, it, it's really sad. Caught me off guard completely. Yeah, it's a very, very sad thing that shows a, a strata of our society that um... Uh, recent, I mean, it, recently it's it's come to light in a few different ways that, uh, I mean, it's not, you can, you can admit a mistake, you can, you can, and it doesn't even have to be a mistake, it can be simply something that you didn't catch the first time around. Sure. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it, it's, it's hard, uh, I guess it's hard sometimes for somebody to look back and say, I, I could have, you know, I might have missed one thing, I, you know, the idea of revision in some of these places and politics as a whole. Yeah, um, it's, it, it, it's really bizarre. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, and it's 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 just really sad when um, you have the the ability to close out, you know, an unsolved murder, maybe bring some closure back to some family members, uh, and you choose not to uh, for, like you said, you know, political reasons or 
um, you know, funding or, or things like that. And uh, uh, it's just, I still have a hard time processing that um, in my mind that I would think everybody would be on board to just go after these victims to try to recover them to bring some family closures. Yeah. And then, yeah, the families are always the most important part of that. They're, they're the ones that are still here. Right. And it actually, um, when I, when I meant, when I saw that, it actually surprised me because, uh, you know, I wasn't often a part of cold cases, but I do remember early on doing an exhumation of a, of a Jane Doe, uh, simply because, you know, from 20 years ago, way back then. Um, and, but there was still a sister, um, that she was told of a shred of evidence and a, a small PD, um, I, it was upstate New York, a small PD opened it back up and brought this woman back. There's not much left after 30 years and just went after the DNA. So it, it was, it's always been in my mind that it's full steam ahead if there's a chance to find closure. Right. Um, so I was very, I was surprised. I'm, you know, I've been in the gig 20 years and I've, I was just surprised to see there'd be that kind of reticence at, at not serving that, that part of the community is still there. They're still there. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I'm telling you, I, I would, people had told me before, listen, you know, they don't like to do, you know, cases like this because, you know, they give me a whole bunch of excuses. And I'm thinking, I don't know where you're from, but what law enforcement agency wouldn't want to jump on this? And then you sit down and talk to them face to face. And they're like, yeah, you know, unfortunately, the, the resources just aren't there. But, you know, by all means, if you come up with anything, um, which means, uh, you know, when we do eventually go and, and search these uh, victims out, the moment, you know, anything is discovered, then it's hands off. You know, I'm smart enough to know that at that point, it's a crime scene. And, and then my job is done, turn it over to them, they'll you know, let them have the credit, the glory or whatever, just as long as they could close it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of that, that closure, have, have uh, any uh, victims' families ever reached out to you? Have they ever, you ever uh, ended up with a relationship or with communication with them after some of the interactions you've had? So there's uh, happened to be a, a, a brutal murder in my uh, former hometown of Sandusky, Ohio, uh, where the individual raped and killed the uh, a, a young lady and her two young kids, very young, I, just a couple years old, uh, raped them all and killed them all. And uh, I happened to know both sides of the family. So I was there at the the, the sentencing aspect of the uh, trial because of, obviously my friend was the judge and um, that family has always stayed in contact with me. Uh, and, and honestly, I tried to talk them out of going for the death penalty um, simply because uh, the way the defendants are, at least my guys, um, a lot of times they want to continue to control the, the victim's families by issuing those appeals and forcing them to relive those events. And, I, and I've explained to them that typically you're going to stress yourself to death way before this person gets executed, if they ever get executed. Um, the best thing for you can that you should do would be, and, and it's coming from a professional opinion, you know, uh, counseling wise, it would be to seek some counseling, you know, to deal with your grief and loss. Forget about that individual and never give him the satisfaction of even thinking about him again. Uh, let him perish, knowing that he will never get outside those prison walls again. Uh, and don't, you know, waste your life waiting to watch somebody else die. Um, 
unfortunately, you have prosecutors, though, that are very much into wanting to get that notch on their post of, of seeking the death penalty and winning it. Uh, and they do so a lot of times with very little regard for the victims' families, not realizing what they're going to be going through. Uh, for them, on the political spectrum, it's a win, but the harm that they have done to that family while they sit back and wait. And, and I know, you know, at least two of those family members have already passed away, if not three already, and he's still on death row with no date set. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, if you look at it, victim advocacy and victim rights laws have come a long way in the last 15 years or so. Right. But that balance between, you know, the, the defendant's right to defend themselves and the eighth amendment and all those other things that go into the, the, the subject's rights that those victims, it, it's no matter how much the, the state, or we try to, um, uh, you know, put a statute to what the victim's rights are. They have, you're exactly right. Every time that comes around, it's designed to help them, but it's, you gotta, it's not even ripping off a bandaid. It's ripping off, ripping open a scar and starting fresh Oh yeah, uh, for these people. And it's, it's, it's brutal because you'll see on TV all the time when somebody is finally executed 18, 20, 30 years later, the family right away will say, well, now we can, you know, let our closure begin. And you sit there and think, you know, you could have started that process 20 or 30 years ago. Um, not that it, you know, it minimizes what this individual has done, but what look what he has done to you over this time period that he or she has lived on death row as well. Uh, and, and again, you know, the, the prosecutors hold that ultimate uh, power. You know, if, if they don't bring that case forward as a capital offense, uh, then there is no death case. You know, the judge can't say yes or no. The defense attorneys, it's, it's how the prosecutors indict it uh, and, and bring that death spec to it. Um, and I think they do so a lot of times without consulting the family in the right way, you know, preparing them for what's going to lie ahead for possibly decades to come. Yep. And with the, with the victim advocacy often sponsored by the prosecutor's office or yes. a part of the department working right enough, out of the office. Yeah. Yep, they're in the forward leaning. This is the, this is the team. This is the game plan. This is what we right. do. And, and yeah, that, that costs that family. I mean, you, like you said, 18, 20 years down the road, you get closure. Where, but what about that 18 to 20 years? That's the only thing that that guy had to take from you. And he took it and he took rather, it and he took it. Yeah. Rather than just being buried away in a closet and forgotten about, which probably would have been much worse for that individual. Yeah. You know? Because again, they don't want to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, you know, and, and if that person um, would have been placed on general population, chances are he'd probably been dead by now anyways, because of the fact that when he raped the, the young lady, he also raped the little children before he killed them. And uh, they're not accepted on general population, uh, whereas on death row, they are. Yeah, yeah there's given that, they've given that freedom and seclusion. Yeah. Now, um, has there ever been anybody you walk into the room with, or, or actually in all the interactions you've had, are there, are there people sometimes you walk into the room to and they, there's not, you can kind of see through them a little bit. Is there a bravado or something? And then is, have you ever walked into the room and said, I'm sitting right next to a predator, you, you know, or is there, have you ever seen a dichotomy in that? Um, you know, I, um, all of my guys pretty much admit that they're guilty right off the bat. So I already know going in with that mindset that this individual killed, you know, X amount of people uh, at least. So 
you know, three, five, 20, 40, whatever, you know. Um, so I, my mindset is already there. Uh, and the reason I do it that way is because of the fact that if they think they're innocent, you know, then they need an attorney. They don't need to talk to me uh, first and foremost. And second of all, if they think they're innocent, then they're not going to tell me what I know is, is really true. So, um, and again, probably 95% of my people, they'll admit right off the bat that they're guilty. So um, their attorneys hate that, you know, especially when it appeals, they don't like them to put that in writing or anything. Um, I would say that the only one I talk to um, on a consistent basis who's uh, states that he's uh, not guilty would be Scott Peterson um, out in California. Uh, who he's seeking a retrial right now anyways and they took the death spec off um, but uh, he, he's for the most part maintained his innocence um, there, there's been some communication between the two of us that would lead me to think otherwise um, but uh, normally if it was a, a different person they said you know I'm, I'm completely innocent of everything uh, then I wouldn't waste my time with them but he reached out to me through other inmates from San Quentin. So he sends me his paintings and, you know, we talk and, and things like that. So, uh, uh, but he's probably the only one that I've dealt with over the years that says he's innocent. He's still, still fighting it. Still fighting it. Yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess um, overall uh, with all the experience you've had being behind a curtain that, that like you said, most of us don't want to see, and those of us that do probably don't understand um, the whole point of our penal system is to be of consequence to, to try and make it, try and change a person's behavior when it, and in my, I know there's multiple theories of why capital punishment exists mm -hmm. in my mind. It's always been um, it's always been that punitive action. You, sure. know, you commit this and, and the, the uh, in the agreement between society, if this person, shows they cannot function here or commit a heinous enough crime you're taken out of society right if it, if we were to subscribe to the um to that penal you know theory of um punitive theory of uh, capital punishment overall between the recidivism rate uh the the effect uh the the resources I, and i don't i don't I, and i and if you don't want to answer I, I don't want you to answer but um your overall the effectiveness of capital punishment and kind of the effectiveness of our penal system as a whole what's your what's your take after all your experiences in there so you know i would say that if your ultimate goal is you know retribution i guess you know where, where you're looking at um removing somebody from society to seek justice to where they will never ever see the light of day again uh and they will never harm another innocent person then I think by placing them in a maximum security prison for life without parole, then you would have accomplished that goal. Um, for our legal system, our penal system, you know, we have 50 states where we're down to like 30, uh, maybe less that have the actual death penalty other than the federal government, which supersedes and they can have it in all 50. Um, so if, if the way I try to put it is a nation like ourselves that ha, that's a very wealthy nation, you know, uh, everything into perspective, we can't figure out a healthcare system. We can't figure out an educational system that works. 
Um, and we certainly can't figure out a criminal justice system because we imprison more than anybody else in, in you know, free society. Um, I just don't know what makes the government think that they can figure out how to put somebody to death. Um, you know, you have different methods that nobody agrees upon. You know, South Carolina just went to the firing squad. Ohio's trying to go to the firing squad. Um, I think Oklahoma is looking at the gas chamber. Um, you know, we have lethal injection, obviously. So you can't agree on the method. You can't agree on the drugs. You can't agree on which state is going to have it or not have it. So if we can't agree on the ultimate form of punishment, then maybe we shouldn't be having it at all. That's kind of my take on it. Almost like the system is maybe broken beyond repair. So if yeah, that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because I kind of, I kind of come down the same way. If it's not, if there isn't a, a clear benefit, if the, if society isn't bettered by it, right. um, I'm not sure it's effective. And sure. and that and the reason I asked that whole question was our recidivism rate in most places is upwards of fifty percent. So if right. we're trying to if we're trying to send people away to learn their lesson and return to society, uh, like you said, the system needs a needs yeah. kind of a reboot. We need to yeah. relook at how we do this. Well, and and I think a lot of times we. Um, as a society, we're pretty narcissistic ourselves, thinking that we're better than everyone instead of learning from other places. So if you look at certain countries over in Europe, like the Netherlands, where they've had to actually close prisons because of the lack of criminals that they lock up uh, and the type of um, rehabilitation that they do, because over here we put you know uh, corrections in front of the rehabilitation aspect. Uh, where we need to really rehabilitate these individuals. So when they do come back out into society, you know, they are a productive member of it, working wise, skill wise, education wise, things like that. Unfortunately, that doesn't get politicians elected. When you say, let's be uh, less tough on crime and let's educate and, and promote, you know, substance abuse, uh, counseling and mental health therapy and everything of, of those individuals that are incarcerated for when they do get out. Uh, people hear that and they're like, I'm never going to vote for that guy. He's just, you know, uh, too weak. So it's unfortunate that they put their own, um, uh, I, I guess, titles before, you know, what really counts. And um, they end up doing more harm than good. Yeah. Society doesn't suffer a benefit if a guy can't stay out of jail more than three years. Correct. Right. There just isn't. Um, and, and it's a lot of times society's fault because we set them up for failure inside the prison. And then when they come out, you know, we've already taken their driver's license. We've taken their uh, self-esteem. We, we've taken, you know, their ability to travel, no IDs, you know, so can they really work? We haven't given them the counseling they needed to maybe kick the drug habit that they've had or the mental health issues that they've suffered. Um, so they're only uh goal then is to be taken care of and the only way they know how is to be institutionalized so they commit yep. more crimes yep yeah that's they, you know when when somebody's telling you what to do every day it's a lot easier yeah, yeah structure you know where you're sleeping it, it's structured and and it's odd that that people who uh flaunt rules on the outside really often adapt to the structure of the inside yes um and it's and it's not you know that's just, not just a reference to the old guy in shawshank they couldn't make it that's you right. see that I've, I've seen that in, in action, a guy who's a lunatic on the street works really well in prison because everybody's Absolutely. given him a purpose. 
Yes. Yeah. It's a weird, it's an, it's an it, odd it thing. Is. It is. And then, yeah. you know, when you come out with a number, you know, and everybody's doing background checks and everything else, and, you know, some of them have multiple numbers uh, or they're on every type of registration that they have to be on. Um, there's just no hope for them. And when they lose hope, then the despair kicks in uh, and desperation will cause them to do all kinds of things, typically more crimes uh, and, which is, you know, loading up the court system again and, and the, you know, public defenders and the jails and, and it's just a vicious cycle. Yep. Yeah. So the system as a whole needs a, needs a hard look, but like you said, you can't get past the politicians to actually right. give a, give a, yeah. a true, honest look. That's um, true. And, uh, and I know that, that we've been going a while and I appreciate your time, but uh, I did have one more question. Sure. Since we're talking about the penal system, uh, the for-profit penal system, Yes. I, I honestly don't understand how we can, how we have that. And I'm, and I, I'm only making a judgment on the outside. because I don't think we should ever be, a, I don't think anybody should profit on housing people, warehousing people. Right. So I wondered if you had any experience with that in your travels within this, this world. Yes. Yeah, so when uh, Ohio was moving death rows around, uh, we placed them one time uh, for quite some time in a for-profit maximum security in Youngstown. And, uh, and it housed more than just death row. But when you look at it, there's no incentive for them to parole into anyone or get them out on good behavior or anything like that, because they are literally, in my opinion, it's almost like human trafficking because of the fact that it's our version of uh, modern day slavery that, where they're doing all of this work you know, in prisons. And this is for-profit and state-run. Uh, you know, for pennies on the hour and, you know, manufacturing all these goods and services and that where they, the, the system is made to where we have to have that in place in order for them to survive. Uh, and the, and the for-profit penal system, I, I don't even know how that's even legal. I, I just, I question that every time I saw it. Yeah, I've, I've tried to understand it, but in a very basic sense, I can't get over the fact that more people equals more profit, and that should be the last goal that we have right. in a criminal justice system. Yeah, you know? right. Uh, I, I, so. you're, you're absolutely right. And it again, it's like, you know, the when the agencies didn't want to uh, spend the resources looking for bodies, you have another, you know, institution that wants to keep bodies in there for profit. And yep. it's, it's mind boggling in, in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, it's a hard one to fathom. But since I had you, I wanted to ask the question because you got yeah. more experience than most people. <laughs> so, um, but I, I appreciate your time tonight. And uh, as uh, as far as uh, um, uh, watch me die, last words from Death Row. Um, the best place to find it, Amazon. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, it's through Wild Blue Press. Uh, they they've been a great uh, publishing company to work with. Uh, and uh, yeah, people can pick it up, uh, you know, online pretty easily or uh, either, like you said, on a uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I'm certain it's out there other places. I just have no idea. I try not to keep track of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, nobody want, ever wants to look at the numbers. No, <laughs> you know? no. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and full disclosure, everybody, Wild Blue is also my, uh, my publisher for uh, my newest book, Blood Red Ivory, which again, they've been very supportive. So Absolutely. Um, they put us, they put the two of us together and yeah. I know you're on, uh, I follow you on Instagram. Are you Twitter, Facebook? Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, you know, uh, under Bill Kimberlin. Um, and, you know, I, I'll get people instant message me on, 
either Instagram or uh, Facebook a lot because when I post the artwork, it's just like a tip of the iceberg. So like, I think today I posted like maybe 16 or 17 different death row masks that came all at one time from a guy. Um, but I never put the names out there. So sometimes people will message me, ask me who it's from and I'll tell them or a little bit more about what the art is about and who it's from. Uh, Twitter, my son handles that. And I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. So I'm, uh, I'm not up to date on that. So uh, well, I uh, I really appreciate your time, and I would highly suggest uh, Watch Me Die. Um, like you, like we said in the beginning, extremely easy to read, and it and it doesn't make judgments on anything. It just opens up that world so that the, the uh, those of us who have never been a part of it, you can see exactly what it, what goes into it and how exactly these people respond to that to that uh, condemnation, so to speak. Right. Um, so thank you very much, sir, and I I appreciate it, and. Um, I hope, uh, I hope you have uh, a lot of luck with the show and uh, I'd love Thank to you. for you to come back and tell me about it. Absolutely. I'd be honored to. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be working together again soon in the future because of uh, the publishers. So um, good luck with yours as well. And if there's anything I can ever do, let me know. But again, it was an honor just to be on your show. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, sir. And uh, just before I cut off everybody, uh, I got to remind you, uh, the audiobook Blood Red Ivory, uh, came out last week. Uh, thank you all of you for all the comments and, uh, and, uh, really good feedback that I've been getting so far. And, uh, I can't wait to talk to you again next week.